You're in the information age, but facts are in short supply. Reject the noise, ask bold questions, and pursue the truth with FBI whistleblowers and founding suspendables, Garrett O'Boyle and Steve Friend. This is the American Radicals Podcast. It is the American Radicals Podcast, and thank you for being here. It's 12 Eastern, folks. It's Thursday. We're almost to the weekend. Thanks for being with us on Rumble. It's rumble.com slash amradpod. If you're listening to the podcast, uh, make sure that you're giving us a subscribe and a follow. If you're on Rumble, make sure you smash the like button, folks. Thanks for being here today. I'm excited. I uh, I have a great guest with me today. Uh, Garrett, again, couldn't make it today. He had some daddy daycare issues, but not a big deal. I will not be lonely today because I'm excited to bring on a guest, and that is Miss Natalie Winters. How you Hi, doing? thank you so much for having me. I'm happy to uh, to fill in for Garrett. Big shoes to fill. Literally, literally best. big literally, shoes to yeah. fill. Yeah, he's he's a he's a behemoth of a, of a man. But uh, that's that's the the that's my cross to bear. As you can tell from the uh, from the picture of our podcast, a lot of times it's me like looking up at him. It's it's very much like a dad son relationship that we have. <laughs> hey, I, I feel that with Steve, right? He's a lot taller than me. Also, very big shoes to fill. So uh, it's nice to have such wonderful co-hosts and partners, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, it, it makes it easier. It, it's yes. the banter is definitely like I'm new behind in front of the of the the microphone and in front of the camera. It's definitely a, a weird situation. You know, I'm in this this home studio that I have and I've set up and I try to make it look as professional as I can, but then I, I just have to check myself because out of the corner of my eye right now, I could see my wife typing away on her computer <laughs> as she's working virtual as well. So uh, oversharing a little bit here, but hopefully that the quality of the podcast, uh, it, it comes out and that's what I think our audience really appreciates. And I know they appreciate you, anybody that consumes uh, the war room um, and you're, you're a regular there, you've been a muckraker there. Um, I wanted though, for people who don't actually watch war room or listen to it, uh, sort of introduce you to the audience because uh, being an, a former now FBI agent, I'm really used to being the person in the room if I'm in a social setting of having the cool job and everybody <laughs> kind of flocks you, but you have a very cool job and I'm just interested in how you kind of found yourself in the situation that you're in right now. Yes, I always say my my cool party trick is uh, is my job. Uh, and it didn't just start when I jo joined War Room as its co-host and executive editor of, of the website uh, portion of the whole operation there a little over a year ago. But I used to work for Raheem Kassam um, as an investigative reporter at the National Pulse. And a lot of my stories had to do with foreign infiltration, particularly at the hands of the Chinese Communist Party. I'm sure everyone in your audience has seen someone, whether it's a politician or a you know conservative media talking head, certainly not a mainstream media talking head, talking about how our politicians, our thought leaders, our so-called experts are you know bought and paid for by China or made in China, all these talking points. But I really thought that we could get more granular with a lot of those allegations, which not just are allegations, they're, they're factually true. Um, but I really sought out to, I think, sort of provide the evidence, the you know footnotes uh, for those assertions about you know the Joe Bidens of the world, the Nancy Pelosi's of the world, and of course the establishment Republicans um, of the world. So a lot of my reporting has to do with how the Chinese Communist Party infiltrates the United States. But people are probably also saying, well, I've seen you cover a lot of other stuff too, and that's because 
CCP infiltration influences so much, not just of the news cycle, but this country, obviously, the, the best example of that would be the origins of COVID. Um, so a lot of my, my early reporting um, had to do with, of course, the Wuhan Institute of Virology, the Bat Lady, Shenzhong Li, Gain of Function Research, and of course, the notorious Anthony Fauci. Um, I, I just kind of think of my role in this whole media sphere as since I haven't been compromised by these foreign influence ops that I'm reporting on, and I think you're probably, it's, it's, a, it's a similar parallel, right? You haven't like bought into the DEI mindset, the woke mindset that the FBI was pushing on you guys. So you sort of feel that obligation to get the word out there. And since I'm not captured by these, you know, multi-billion dollar political warfare operations emanating out of Beijing, it's like, well, someone has to blow the whistle on it. So that's where a lot of my, my reporting focuses on. We need a global town crier. We need a lot of them. There's a lot of people out there. That's one of the lessons that I've learned since becoming more of a public person um, is that there's a lot of people out there who are trying to consume content, trying to consume the news. And you, we all sort of fall into this habit of thinking like, well, I watch this program, so everybody must watch that program. And for the last year and a half, I will go consistently on different programs that have massive audiences and massive reach, and they're just unaware of the story that I'm trying to tell. And that's not on them. There's just, it's a 24 hour news cycle. There's a lot coming at me. Uh, and that this is a lesson that I learned very early on from Cheryl Atkinson. She was the first journalist. She came to my house and interviewed me. And she said, look, I, I don't want you to think that I'm ignorant or dumb, but what I'm focusing on is all I'm really focusing on. And I sort of block it all out. This is a job to me, very much like if you're a welder, you're focusing on welding. You're not necessarily looking at Chinese infiltration across the Southern. <laughs> uh, I mean, that, you might do that as your hobby, but really you're not a subject matter expert. Uh, did, is there a particular reason why this issue, the, the Chinese infiltration we've had just resonated with you to any sort of anecdote or anything that happened in your background? No, I, I've had the same experience with, with media as you have. I always feel like after I do one hit on a story, I'm like, all right, you know, done, who cares, right? And that's not the case. And I think that that is the important distinction that left-wing media versus conservative media, where it really exists. In other words, I think the left-wing media, or it's not even really left, it's just the mainstream establishment narrative, that is so adept at the wash, rinse, repeat cycle and narrative building, whereas I think our side when we try to get our stories out there we aren't very cohesive and i would argue it's because a lot of conservative media is controlled opposition so they don't really want to get certain stories out there um for example a lot of conservative news outlets were part of that chinese communist party journalists kind of pay for play program in exchange for favorable coverage which i'm sure we'll eventually get into but you know I was blessed, believe it or not, at age 19 to uh, starting starting have, have worked for Steve Bannon behind the scenes at, uh, at War Room Impeachment, which was the precursor to War Room Pandemic, which is now War Room and whatever the next thing is, I'm sure it'll become War Room, you know, climate change lockdown or something like that. Um, but I started behind the scenes as a staff writer, uh, really just taking show notes, you know, just it was like a college class, uh, bullet pointing everything and helping pitch it out to different media outlets to cover. Um, and through that, I'm sure uh, the FBI would probably say I got radicalized, um, but I would say I learned the truth. And I really was so blessed to learn so much from Steve in terms of his worldview. But I think there's an interesting 
sort of dichotomy between most people who hold the worldview that Steve does, right? They understand the threat that the Chinese Communist Party poses socially, culturally, they're more conservative. And it's, it's I think, perceiving a politics as the uniparty versus everyone else versus just, you know, Republicans versus Democrats type type narrative type discourse. But being 22, then being 19 at the time, you know, I grew up, unfortunately, in a generation where we always had computers in the classroom. I know how to manipulate search algorithms and find deleted web pages. And I'm I'm very good at that, believe me, much to the dismay of my uh, my ex-boyfriends. <laughs> but um, I kind of merged those two worlds, I think, because for so long, I think, for lack of a better word, the, sor- the sort of boomer worldview of the Chinese Communist Party was something that was kind of exclusively held by the older generations who didn't really know how to do the in-depth, raw investigative reporting, right? Going through the FARA databases, algorithmically searching, site searching, pulling up deleted websites, cross-referencing, scanning, doing the pattern recognition stuff. I'm also probably just, my brain is wired differently. Um, But I sort of fused, I think, those two worlds of reporting, which I don't think you you often see. Um, So that was where I sort of saw the opening and the void and really the necessity for the, the reporting that I was doing. But no, everyone thinks that like growing up, I was like the hardcore CCP girl. I honestly, if you would have asked me at age 17 when I was graduating high school, if I even knew what the CCP stood for, I probably would have been like Coco Chanel and Prada. You know, I would have had no idea. Um, but I very quickly realized by being blessed and honored to be around the Steve Bannons of the world, the Peter Navarro's of the world, um, that they were our existential threat. And I was like, okay, well, I got to do something about it then. I think the battle that was fought in the Cold War was very analog. And I think the, and now we're very digital. And the the difficulty that our government's having in adjusting to that, it's still, it's also being experienced from the media and from journalists. The, 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 the type of searching that they have to do, they're, ill-equipped to do it and then the little bit when they dip their toe into it they they sort of view it as an opportunity to sort of be lazy which is why you you go to a lot of these new news aggregation websites and it'll be i I noticed it was like one out of every 10 and then it was like one out of every five and now it's like two out of every three stories is something to the effect of so and so says x on twitter and (laughs) so they basically just looked at a social media website and pulled a quote because they didn't actually have to you know interview anyone because that's a quote, right? Somebody put it out there publicly and they're not digging into the details and, and even thinking beyond, uh, well, why that quote got to me, how did it get to me? Maybe there was a little manipulation. It, what was the influence that allowed that to get to me? There's, it's just a greater level of thought. It's, it's a lot more complicated than just black hats and white hats of, of the old 1970s, 1980s Cold War era where we had a perceived USSR enemy and we were the, the good guys. We were obviously Rocky Four. We were going over there and, and ending the Cold War with a bloody boxing match. That was how it ended, in my mind at least. Um, I'm a little older than you, so you might not appreciate the reference, but the folks in the <laughs> goes, Rumble goes chat. my head. I, pop culture stuff is, is not, my, not my Well, we have, we have a rolling uh, movie <laughs> reference quota that is expected of me within the rumble chat. If you are with us on rumble at, uh, it's uh, rumble.com slash Amrad pod, uh, Rocky four Sylvester Stallone goes over to Russia to fight against the, uh, the Soviet union's champion. And at the end, they have a whole come together moment where he says, if I can change, you can change. Everyone can change. And that was essentially was my childhood mindset of, well, that's what won the cold war. Obviously we didn't need any mutually assured destruction. We just sent over sliced alone. He won the war. Mm-hmm. Um, but before we get too down the rabbit hole of any third sort of <laughs> cultural references, 
I, I'm curious about, I want to set you up to talk about the Chinese plan that, that's been rolling and being implemented, and then I'll, I'll launch you off. Uh, when I was in school, I was in the junior ROTC program. And one of my instructors was a senior chief retired in the Navy. And I remember very specifically that he ha had a lesson for us. And he was talking about the, the Chinese population at that point, because they'd already implemented the one child plan at that point, had been rescinded and, and augmented and amended. And he said, prior to that, the population of China was so large, they could have marched them in columns of eight into the ocean and they never would have stopped coming just because of the, you'd be able to reproduce by the back of the line before they got there. And then he further said, if China wanted to, with its actual sheer volume of people, they could send a million people over the border and have them say, we surrender. And then the next day, send another million over and have them say, we surrender. And they could do that for about a week. And any enemy would just say, we surrender in this war, just because we can't humanely care for these prisoners of war, you win. And I, I like to use that story as sort of... Um, a metaphor for the possibility of, of a Chinese infiltration through media, through physically at the border. And they might be doing that exact same plan just in a larger format, not an obvious million man surrender plot, but that sort of game plan. They're running that playbook. Is, is that something that sort of connects any dots to you? Yeah, I would say it's not a metaphor. It's it's happening in, in real time and it's been going on for decades. So a lot of my reporting, we're going to get very granular here. So so buckle up or if you don't want the details, I, I apologize. But so when you talk about Chinese Communist Party foreign influence operations, most of it is conducted under the auspices of what's called the United Front Work Department. Now, this is a multi-billion dollar, with a B, uh, political warfare operation that is run out of Beijing. It's administered by the Chinese Communist Party. And they have a panoply of front groups, of proxy groups, that they weaponize to target various sects of elites in the United States and the West more broadly. So what I mean by that is that they set up these front groups, these proxy groups, which is very similar to the Soviet strategy. Um, they have all very euphemistic, kind of innocuous sounding names. You have the China United States Exchange Foundation, the Chinese People's Association uh, for Friendship and Foreign Contact, almost as nice as, you know, diversity, equity and inclusion. Anything that ever sounds too good to be true is, is probably just that. Um, but all of these groups target like I said, whether it's people in mainstream media, people in think tanks, academia, even politicians, um, with uh, various forms of sort of elite capture tactics. And the predominant one that I have seen be used by, for example, the China United States Exchange Foundation um, is that they usually retain American lobbyists. So when you talk about the beltway, the swamp profiting off of the Chinese Communist Party, how, you know, China's rise really has been a, a boon for the American ruling class. I think this is really a perfect example of that. Um, but a lot of these companies or, or front groups, sort of weird nonprofit type organizations, retain American lobbyists. Oftentimes they're former members of Congress. Uh, they're politically connected people who help connect them with really, I describe it as the Achilles heel of America, right? Whether that's the politicians writing the legislation, the mainstream media talking heads, the academics writing the papers, creating the prevailing discourse on whether or not the Chinese Communist Party is a threat, the you know Brookings institutions of the world. And what they'll do, I think their, their favorite, their kind of go-to tactic is they will pay for these people to go on all expenses paid trips to China 
while they're over there, they're, of course, you know, touring facilities of Huawei, meeting with PLA commanders, of course, sanctioned entities here in the United States. Um, but in the case of the journalists, upon return, and this is all evidenced through the Foreign Agent Registration Act filings, which I always joke, I'm the only non-bot, the only American who frequents that website. Um, but it was shown in these documents, which had been around for years. No one just ever reported on them until I did about two years ago, because they were all sort of part of captured by the system, right? Um, but it showed that when they came back from China from these trips, they had to provide, quote, favorable coverage and, quote, disseminate positive messages about the Chinese Communist Party. And you could see their vetting process. They picked journalists that they thought they could get these these favorable coverage, these favorable stories out of. So they're selectively picking journalists that they know will engage in the pay for play stuff. And they were doing it with journalism school students as well. They've done these same things with people who work at think tanks, notoriously the Center for American Progress, which was the Podesta outfit, outfit really staffed most of the Obama administration. Even Wendy Sherman, who's the deputy or was the deputy secretary of state for Joe Biden, sort of an important position. Um, she took these trips and so did her husband, who was a journalist, took the journalist side of the trip too. But they do it with college students. And I've um, obtained some testimonials of college students who've gone on these trips to China and they make them write these, you know, very pro CCP or maybe they genuinely believe it, but uh, testimonials about their experience there. And one girl after coming back, she's like, China is an amazing communist country. Um, I hope she literally was like, I hope they take over the world with their model of, of the economy and, and social. It's crazy the propaganda that they're having these kids put out um, and journalists and adults and politicians. So my point is, is that, you know, Chinese foreign influence operations is not this sort of piecemeal. Oh, let's give this random person a million dollar deal. Oh, let's use a honeypot here. It is very systematic and calculated. This is the Walter Durante from the New York Times, who got a Pulitzer Prize, I believe, in 1932 for going over to the Soviet Union and just continuing to cover for their for for the commies. I mean, and coming back and reporting back to the uh, to the American people, especially the FDR administration, that this was the the future that was going to be. And obviously, China's taken that and magnified it and it's not just one particular journalist they've they've captured people of different generations and all different industries here i mean i i read recently about them being able to infiltrate uh the the movie industry and how the the, the fact that we have movies that will um you know we had the, the top gun movie that the maverick where they were there's a huge issue about him having the taiwan flag on his on his coat because that was going to impact whether or not china would even carry that movie uh, and, th and that's sort of the capture they can have on just the entertainment industry, let alone something like journalism or even government and national security perspective. No, and I think that this is where the next kind of step with the critique of Chinese Communist Party influence operations comes or kind of eventually progresses, or at least in my opinion, what I see unfolding. And I think the best example to sort of talk about this is TikTok. Um, when people talk about the threat of TikTok, it's always, you know, oh, they're censoring stories that are critical of the Chinese Communist Party. Oh, they're censoring stories about Xinjiang. Um, but I actually think it's a step further than that, right? I think they are using TikTok as a platform to actively spread culturally subversive messaging in the United States, really just to promote degeneracy. There's, there's no other way to, to couch it. 
And when you start promoting these alternative lifestyles and the LGBTQ and the trans stuff, you know, that is going to depress Western birth rates, which is something that the Chinese Communist Party wants to use as a pretext to justify mass immigration. Um, but I, I think with the, the China stuff in terms of the Hollywood example, obviously, you know, the Taiwanese flag having or mandating that Chinese characters are played by Chinese actors when these films are produced or kind of recut uh, for Chinese audiences. Um, I would say that that is important, right? But when you're talking from a geopolitical standpoint, you know, it's not that big of a deal. But I think the bigger issue, the bigger takeaway I have with all of that stuff is that it shows, and this isn't a secret, um, but that these corporations, right, are so beholden and so controlled by the Chinese Communist Party, right? Whatever the Chinese Communist Party says and tells them to do, they will do, right? It's not just jump how high, it's jump how high, what else do you want from me? How can you, right? Like they are very um, subservient to the CCP. And I think when you see these woke corporations pushing this type of messaging too, right? Whether it's the, you know, obese models with like every form of weird thing going on or the DEI stuff in these corporations or Nike promoting the Pride Month stuff, right? That's not something that the Chinese Communist Party supports. Look no further than the fact that on Ch the Chinese form of TikTok, they don't allow any of this like culturally degenerate stuff. So I think that if the Chinese Communist Party really didn't want that stuff, they would be telling these corporations, hey, knock it out, don't do it. But I think that they, they really prefer it and they're pushing it because as you know, they've always pr preferred infiltration as opposed to invasion, and they prefer unrestricted warfare. And the three warfares doctrine, which is codified into their military code, it's psychological warfare, media warfare, and legal warfare. And I think the legal warfare is obvious with the lawfare side of things, media warfare, I think just turn on CNN, state-sponsored propaganda. But on the psychological warfare too, I think TikTok is being used as sort of a weapon in that front. And look no further than the fact that the guy who founded it, who stepped down because I think he didn't want to get, you know, depersoned and, you know, kicked off a fence and killed in China. Um, he admitted that when they founded TikTok, it was created to, quote, promote socialist core values and to foster a culture of devotion to the Chinese Communist Party. So these are serious, serious information warfare style threats. Um, and I think the current narrative around it is either, you know, pro TikTok, oh, who cares, or they just don't perceive of it as the actual existential threat that it is and that it's a weapon of, of information warfare. Do you think from the uh, from the industries and, the, and these captured corporations from the American com companies, uh, they're captured by the Chinese. I, I think they're they're probably seeking to enter those markets to be able to sell sell their sell their products. They're they have uh, labor needs that they're and they're they've outsourced over to that foreign country. Um, so the demands that the, the the CCP places on American corporations uh, to push the DEI and the ESG and the and the woke agenda. Do you think that they are taking that directive? from the CCP and then saying, well, look, we can, we'll benefit from the Chinese markets and the cheap labor, and then we'll come over here and we'll be able to virtue signal to the American left. And it's a win across the board for us because we get to essentially achieve the evil ends of both the far left and the far right, where you're going to be the, you know, the, the evil capitalist who's going to exploit labor and, and take advantage of your customers, that, that whole, 
uh, that monopoly man image that people have in their head. And then you also get to benefit from the far left and get your bona fides in there where you're saying, hey, we're going to post a black square on our social media pages <laughs> and we're going to make sure we have hiring quotas. We're actually going to give bonuses to our executives for uh, violating employment laws and hiring people who are not as qualified, but because they have the right skin tone or the right sexual proclivities, what not, what have you. Do you think that that the calculation from the American companies is basically take the directive from the Chinese and, and kill two birds with one stone. I, I think people always joke that I'm quick to blame the CCP for everything and make no mistake, the American ruling class is equally as culpable and you can only compromise a country if their elites, I think, are, are treasonous to begin with, right? There's a buy-in there, they're profiting from it. So it definitely takes two to tango. Um, you know, do I think it's the Chinese Communist Party that's, say, putting genderqueer in the classrooms, you know, of, of American schools across the country? No. But I think there's a natural allegiance and alliance between not just these woke corpor corporations, but sort of the far left activist contingent side, too, who just fundamentally hate America. And I think that there's sort of a, a temporary alliance there, because if you look at what their end games are, um, I think there's a lot of overlap. Um, I, I think as much as, you know, for example, the Chinese Communist Party, I don't ever think that they would, you know, invade the United States per se. And I know some people might be saying, oh, my gosh, now I can't believe you're saying that. But I think I could pretty easily make the argument that they don't really need to. Um, and I think they learned the lessons from, from the Soviet Union that, you know, invading other countries and stuff like that is very costful. It's a waste of time and resources. Even just look at the United States and Afghanistan, right? It's the graveyard of empires. So I think the Chinese Communist Party's style of kind of world domination is one more of converting countries, primarily the developing world, but even the United States to some extent too, into, as you know, Steve Bannon always says, tributary states, right? That's why you see the Belt and Road Initiative. I think they realize that they get a much higher ROI um, and it's a lot cheaper and less costly to, instead of actually invading, say, you know, the country of Chad, um, it's better to just buy off their politicians it's better to pay for all their infrastructure with loans that the country can never pay back. And then they swoop in and take over all those projects um, and buy the farmland. And they're doing the same stuff here in the United States. But I think that's sort of their goal of, of global hegemony. And, and I, I know, you know, I went to the University of Chicago and I majored in political science. And believe me, I didn't really learn anything. I had to unlearn everything they taught me. Um, and I, I did that while I was concurrently working in the war room. So you can imagine my the two worlds I was straddling. Um, but the one thing that I thought was really interesting from the like one class I actually attended um, was that the prevailing academic discourse, you know, when you're talking about a unipolar world order, which is what we typically had, the United States being the pole, um, versus a multipolar world order, um, split us and china um that academics think that we are that china wants a multipolar world order and i fundamentally disagree with that because i don't think that the chinese communist party is content with sharing the world stage with the united states they might say that but the fact that they say that shows you that they don't do it right they love sun tzu they love the idea of projection and not actually outlining your and ambitions and goals um, so I think that the Chinese Communist Party end, end goal is really to, to create a unipolar world order wherein they are the only sphere of influence in the United States sort of falls second, third, fourth, fifth. And you see that happening, of course, with de-dollarization, which is really a campaign that is being primarily spearheaded by the Chinese Communist Party. So 
do I necessarily, to link it back to your question, do I necessarily think that, you know, the Chinese Communist Party is the one mandating these corporations to put out the weird Super Bowl ads where you see the people on camera and you're like, I think there's maybe one person like that in the entire country of the United States. Like this statistically makes no sense. Um, I think that they are the prime beneficiaries of that. And I, I think that there's probably some subtle push and I think that they're very okay with it. Um, there, there are some explicitly Chinese Communist Party funded groups. I'm sure your audience is familiar um, that there was some CCP kind of linked cash flowing into some BLM protests. Um, there's, of course, the Confucius Classrooms, which is the K through 12 kind of sister uh, counterpart of Confucius Institutes, the Chinese government subsidized propaganda operations that operate here in the United States. But the K through 12, they had some like second grade classroom out in Washington doing a pen pal program with Xi Jinping. So make no mistake, they are they are actually waging warfare on that front too. But I think they've also sort of realized, hey, if we could just sort of subvert the broader culture in the United States to promote these ideas, like we get a better bang for our buck, because then the crazy marketing execs of Bud Light who think it's a good idea to put Dylan Mulvaney with, with Bud Light, like they'll kind of eat their own, they'll destroy their own country. But I do think they are behind a lot of the subversive messaging. What's your perspective on, uh, on the Chinese infiltration through the One Belt, One Road program of all these African nations? Obviously, they're trying to gobble those up, influence them, get the, the precious minerals that they need there. Um, but this, this, this thought occurred to me when I was looking at the funding of the World Health Organization and the outsized amount of money that was being invested into it by African countries, whereas China, relative to where they are as a behemoth for the globe, as a borderline superpower at this point it's between us and them uh, they were not heavily invested in it but through i'm the i would argue through some carve outs through these african countries are funding the world health organization and then obviously the who does the bidding of what the chinese communist party wants it, it, is have you seen any dots connected there or am i just grasping at straws no, you're totally right. And I, I think it's fair to say, honestly, that the CCP wants to become the new UN. I think they love that model of being like a, a supranational entity that has influence over basically every other country, but isn't bogged down by the day-to-day -day ruling stuff, right? Or the just costly invasions and, and stuff like that. Don't get me wrong, they are invading our southern border, but I think they've kind of done the cost-benefit analysis. Um, but no, you're you're totally right. And the, the Belt and Road stuff isn't even just contained to, to Africa. And I think an important point to make here is that even Italy is on the Belt and Road Initiative, which is just mind blowing. And I think when you look at, you know, where was the first kind of news coming out of about the lockdowns and the massive COVID stuff? It was Italy, right? Yeah. And I, of course, no conspiracies, no coincidences. But I, there's a massive Chinese population there because the kind of hack that a lot of these fashion houses do now is they say, oh, it's made in Italy, but it's basically just Chinese migrants now working in Italy. So it's basically still made in China in a, in a sense, the same factories, but they're just located in Italy. Um, but so from a population perspective, I think that's why you saw COVID out, break out there so much. But on the other hand, I think it also sort of shows the infiltration, again, circumstantial evidence, but from the political perspective, because they did such draconian lockdowns so quickly. And I think it sort of shows that the Chinese Communist Party, either they were directly influencing the politics there, or there is some level of either just ideological influence, or I think ideological compromise going on there. Um, but no, the Belt and Road Initiative 
again, it's interesting because, you know, the Brookings Institution, those think tankers of the world, they're always putting out stories saying that the Belt and Road Initiative is actually like not as successful as they've intended for it to be, which again, as a big fan of Sun Tzu myself, but the Chinese Communist Party is probably a bigger fan of Sun Tzu. I know they love projecting weakness when they're strong, right? So I don't necessarily know if I buy into that narrative. Um, and again, just because a country doesn't sign on to the Belt and Road Initiative, like, you know, the, the pact, it doesn't necessarily mean that they are not still compromised by the Chinese Communist Party. I would just point to the United States as the perfect example of that. Fun fact, during the uh, Trump administration, some former Democrat, like political types, were retained by um, a Chinese Communist Party proxy group to try to lobby the Trump administration into getting the United States to joining the Belt and Road Initiative. And I always joke that was probably the worst money the CCP has ever spent. Um, good luck trying. Although, hey, maybe Joe Biden would sign on. Um, but I, I think they're doing it, obviously, with the predatory loan stuff, taking over the ports, the bridges, the infrastructure, um, which obviously does not bode well. And I think we see with stuff going on in the Middle East, with stuff going on in Ukraine, that, you know, waterways are obviously very, very important. And I, I think when you see the Chinese Communist Party, when you really look at the maps of what they control in Africa, and even a lot of Eastern Europe, too, again, kind of like the TikTok thing. I don't think Americans quite understand it because those maps are, are pretty scary to look at. And again, even state taking a step back specifically from the Belt and Road Initiative, you know, people have heard the stories here about how they're buying up the farmland in the United States. And while that's not a project or a program that is directly under the auspices of the Belt and Road Initiative, just the sort of lust for other countries' land and resources um, is something that is a campaign that the, the CCP has really gone, I think, into overdrive um, with waging. And they've been quite successful here, at least in the United States and, of course, elsewhere. But I also think on the farmland front that it's important to make the uh, the distinction, too, that I think a lot of that kind of warfare being waged is done in tandem with, I think, the kind of WEF, Bill Gates, globalist class of people, too. And I think fundamentally what it comes down to is that, not that they've realized, they've known for a while, but I think for whatever reasons, you know, 2030 is a very important year for them strategically. So I think they're realizing it's approaching. And that's honestly why I think they don't want Trump in office again so badly, because they know 2025 for the four-year term that that would really impede their 2030, you know, sustainable development goals, the Chinese Communist Party's 2030 agenda, stuff like that. Um, but with the farmland stuff, I think they've just realized that, you know, warfare is not just kinetic. It's not just boots on the ground, right? It's unrestricted warfare. It's more subversive. Um, and you really can weaponize, whether it's, you know, climate change, whether it's public health, i.e. pandemics, whether it's food su supply and food security or supply chains, that all of these components really work to create a different kind of 21st century form, form of warfare. And when half of this country, the politicians, more than half, probably 80 percent, are bought off, that's why you never see any like substantive legislation combating it. Of course, they'll do the nice press conferences, they'll write the strongly worded letter letters, they'll do the op-eds, they'll put out tweets saying the Chinese Communist Party shouldn't own land, but they don't actually do anything, right? They just want to keep people, you know, content and, and fat and happy and, and pleased thinking that they're doing stuff. But when you actually get to the nitty gritty, 
there's not a lot being done because the CCP, whether it's the lobbyists or the politicians or the staffers themselves, they even had a program where they were, they were paying to take congressional staffers, Hill staffers, overseas to China in exchange for the kind of favorable coverage deals that they were doing with the journalists. So it's all very calculated. Um, and again, don't miss the forest for the trees with the Belt and Road stuff because that is happening, but just because it's not happening under the umbrella term of that, um, it's still very much a real threat. Yeah, I'm, I'm even thinking about financial aspects to it, where how hard would it be for them through one of these BlackRock rock type of giant enormous hedge funds to buy up a lot of student debt? And then all of a sudden you can co-opt a whole bunch of people who are looking for a get out of jail free card on, on making those payments. And, and they would be sympathetic to, you know, any sort of initiative that the CCP might wipe because they're beholden to them at that point. So I think that it's, it's an all fronts war, you know, it's it, through the health industry, through, uh, it, you say kinetic, I mean, cyber, it, media, everything it's in. I think that we have been derelict as a country in taking in the Chinese Communist Party seriously across all these fronts. And, you know, a lot of that is because our elected officials are, are captured to them. Um, you did touch on the one thing I do. Uh, I, I do have a new story I wanted to bring up uh, about, and, and it pertains to China and the southern border, which is pretty interesting. And this was uh, this was documented by the, the Daily Wire. Uh, I will pull up right here and then I'll let you comment on it. So it pertains to in the last uh, 11 months, 31,000 Chinese uh, nationals were stopped by law enforcement at the southern border. Uh, that reflected a 20x increase over what they'd been seeing in, uh, in in prior years. Obviously, it's it's not an easy haul to get from China to the United States. I do I did kind of chuckle at the the way that it was presented by by left wing media on this because they were saying that well they were fleeing the 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 oppressive chinese government to get here um which most left-wing media thinks that china's doing things right so sort of they, they were in a quandary there because they want to have this rush at the border and at the same time they don't want to speak ill of the chinese uh, and and obviously there's there's capture from from the ccp standpoint uh have you done any uh reporting on this or any looking into how physically their military age men are now crossing the southern border and what, what sort of ramifications that could be for for the country well I, I think the ramifications are are quite clear and i think that the immigration issue though it's hard to whitewash it um to some extent has been kind of whitewashed as like oh it's you know migrants from central and south american countries coming here just for a better life they just want financial freedom economic security whatever I think there's a lot more of a nefarious angle to it. And I think the Chinese Communist Party angle is is probably the most dangerous of all of them. Um, and the numbers are just absolutely staggering. And that's only what what we know. Right. But when you look at the broader, I think, strategy of unrestricted warfare, um, of course, they're going to exploit our, our southern border. That's that's wide open. I always say Joe Biden quite literally, you know, kept the floodgates well the floodgates open literally right they did that down in i believe it was around san diego um to just allow for the, more migrants to be processed into this country um unvetted and i think when you see things like the weird you know food processing centers and the train derailments all those kind of things happening at unprecedented rates sort of a curious connection when you have a wide open southern border i'd even say when you're conducting elections without you know, verification and IDs and you have an open southern border and you're pouring in millions uh, of people from all countries, but particularly a country that certainly doesn't want Trump in office. I think you're going to have some interesting ramifications there. Um, 
but again, it just goes back, I think, to to the unrestricted warfare component of it. And I think it, it, it really shows that all of these, you know, crises that we're facing, whether it's in Ukraine, whether it's in the Middle East, whether it's our southern border, they're all basically to the benefit of the Chinese Communist Party, right? What's going on in the Ukraine and Ukraine in the Middle East, um, or at least the latter eventually, is going to deplete our stockpiles of weapons and ammunitions. It's destroying our economy with the billions and aids that, aid dollars that we're sending over to Ukraine. Um, and the prime beneficiary of that is the Chinese Communist Party. And when they have you know, the ability to basically embed sleeper cells here in the United States with little to no vetting. In some cases, it's probably the taxpayers paying to fly them deeper into the country. Um, of course, you're going to have issues going on. And I think when you, you take a step back and if you look at kind of the end goal, at least maybe for this year, of the CCP wanting to invade Taiwan, when you have the United States so depleted from what we've been doing in Ukraine, exhausted from what's going on in the Middle East, and you have active CCP sleeper cells here in the United States, um, I think that that makes their likelihood of invading Taiwan a, a lot more uh, a lot more likely. Yeah, I'm glad you touched on that. I was actually going to try to get your perspective on a timeline. I mean, do you think that they'll try to do that before a presidential election or they would do it maybe in the in the lame duck period if there's a change in administration or are they they don't even care who's in charge of the of the country and they're just going to do it on their own timeline they seem to have long-term plans uh i've never really i never really think of the chinese as being like well this is a six-month plan it's always like a 60-year plan i think that um doing it while biden is still in power um is is probably the right time to strike i think they'd be very dumb and and not very calculated to do it you know when trump is back in office um and i think it it is sort of the you know old saying of weakness inviting aggression but i think in the case of the biden regime it's not just weakness um it's intentional weakness inviting aggression and it's not just aggression it's aggression from countries that have compromised the biden family and compromised the the biden regime i know that that saying probably isn't as uh, as catchy as weakness inviting <laughs> aggression but it's i think an important distinction um to make um so you know obviously you have the taiwanese elections coming up in what is it two days um and they've already kind of been up to their old tricks whether it's the spy, spy balloons flying around the fighter jets of course the political infiltration um going on there so and it was actually very interesting i had on a bunch of um chinese experts i hosted war room yesterday and they were saying that they you know, while I think a lot of, I'm sure your audience and even myself is sort of averse when we start hearing about, you know, the affairs of other countries, I call it like Ukraine fatigue syndrome. Um, I think Taiwan is a little different, um, but I think we really need to look at what's going on in Taiwan from the election perspective as sort of a trial run for how they want to infiltrate um, the United States here or potentially meddle uh, in our elections, you know, actual foreign um, election interference. Um, but I, I think that the time to to strike Taiwan would be now. And I think if you look at their actions, particularly how they've been building the island chains and it was the Obama administration who basically did nothing about it, um, that I think I think you could potentially see an invasion um, this year. Um, again, my only like hesitation with that is, again, what I've been saying throughout this whole program is the infiltration, not invasion, you know, approach has always been their strategy. Um, but in some cases, I think, for example, Hong Kong, that's more of a typical invasion, right? You have the police forces there. Um, I think when you're dealing with, with countries that 
hold more significance just historically um, to the Chinese Communist Party that just to kind of project their authority and power abroad, that it's good for them for optics to go after Taiwan. And obviously there's a historical and cultural significance to, to that country. Um, but I, I don't know. I, I'm never someone who gives like hyper specific predictions on something that, you know, is probably, I would say, above my pay grade. Um, but I, I definitely think from my kind of intel analysis that there is a a very solid chance um, that you could see something happen this year because you got a weak president, you have the United States spread so thin, financially we're being, you know, de-dollarized and inflated like wild rapid fire every day. Um, so I think the time to, so I'm not, of course, advising the CCP to do it, but I think that the time to strike would be, would be now. And, and what people have to realize is that you don't just get cheap t-shirts from Taiwan. I mean, they're the number one producer of the semiconductor uh, chips in, in for the world. And, and the question that would become, does Taiwan just blow those all up to prevent China from taking them? Or do they just kind of allow it to happen and realize that it's better to be part of that than to be erased off the face of the earth? And then then we're in a world of trouble because technologically we'll be back quite a bit from where from where the CCP stood at that point as a, as a technological rival, especially as both sides are kind of in this like space, this space race to get AI. Um, and I, we would we'd be not just behind the eight ball, we'd probably be behind the whole stack. Um, you touched on, and to pull back, oh, just to detour a little bit away from, from China, you touched on the, the Biden family corruption, which is something that I, I definitely, as long as I have you here, I wanted to touch on because you've done some reporting a fair amount on that as well. You were a, uh, not... Not a jack of all trades, master of none. I think you are a master of several trades here. And <laughs> for those with us, we're with Natalie Winters. Uh, she's a journalist. She's uh, with with War Room Outfit uh, and has a expertise, subject matter expert uh, on the Chinese Communist Party and its infiltration to the United States. And she's also the purveyor. And we will get into this in a, in a minute. Uh, but I do want to make sure we plug it multiple times as often as we can. Of she's so right.com where she's going to be now taking she's going to take on the italians as far as garments go uh for her for expertise in that industry um uh and before we get to the biden thing uh natalie can you tell us about uh about what you got going on at she's so right.com sure well for those of you who haven't tuned out because i've said chinese communist party probably 250 <laughs> times in the last 45 minutes um, you know, the strap line of the war room is action, action, action. And I got tired of giving my money, not just to companies that hated me, but to companies that were using Chinese based factories and Chinese Communist Party owned suppliers. And honestly, I think there was sort of a, a lack of stylish, aesthetic and, and cute and pink and fun women's conservative apparel or just free thinking. Uh, if you don't believe the mainstream media, which I bet most of your audience doesn't. Um, so I set out to, I think, change the way that not just conservative political apparel is done, but really fashion as a whole. In other words, all of our stuff is made in the USA. But if you look at our items, you look at the price points, I was able to keep the prices on par um, with, you know, non-USA made garments, which I think is something that directly undercuts the globalist lie that, you know, we need to outsource to China um, and that, or we need mass migration because Americans don't want to work uh, in manufacturing type jobs. No, you just have to repurpose and kind of reconfigure your approach um, to how you engage in, in all of this. And I'm so blessed to have partnered with factories here in Los Angeles um, that are really committed to 
sort of what I describe as an America first manufacturing process. In other words, they, they put American jobs, they create meaningful jobs, meaningful employment um, with the shirts and hats and sweatshirts that, that we have. Um, and the other important thing, you know, I'm sure your wife, all, all the women that, that you know, they have those cute political t-shirts that they want to wear, but they're done on, you know, boxy men's cuts, right? And you can't really, <laughs> right? Yes, everyone always laughs when I say that because it's true. And you can't wear them. So I was like, you know what? We need to change that. We need to put women in women's cuts because we know there's a difference between men and women. So all of our shirts and tees and sweatshirts are um, designed actually for women. And we have just fun sort of playful designs that probably aren't going to get you on, maybe get you on a watch list, maybe not. Uh, I guess you'd be the one to adjudicate that, but you can see a little bit conspiratorial, more insecure than the border, um, uh, misinformation spelled M-I-S-S, then information, don't tread on me pretty please. So in all things I do, I like to sort of uh, break the mold and it's been so wonderful. We've been in business a week and I guess four days now, three and a half, and uh, we are basically sold out, which is pretty freaking cool. And uh, I'm going back to the factory after your show to place the order for the second run. But you can go to shesoright.co.co to either pre-order some stuff or check it out. And I, I get the sense, I feel like I'm in a, a boys club right now. So we probably have a pretty heavily male audience. So I would say it's a great Valentine's Day gift uh, if you have a special someone or for your wife or daughter. Um, but I really, really appreciate it. And thank you for letting me talk about it. I know women's fashion is probably not what you're usually used to talking about, but I appreciate you giving me the chance. You would be surprised. I, I believe that there's probably 15% of my net worth is invested in like Fleo shorts from my wife. Um, <laughs> and she's always complaining about the sweatshirts issue. You. she's like I, i'm a woman i don't need a v taper that's presented by the hoodie and i yeah. want the female cut so i'm glad you zeroed in on that i'm gonna make sure i send her there because yeah she's always complaining about the sweatshirts and the t-shirts you know here uh garrett boyle normally in 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 the show with me he has his uh, his family sweatshop that he puts out uh, about the suspendables which is our group and uh the complaint that I get from her, even on the on the t-shirts there at www.the-suspendables.com, is that they're generally male-sized and and and, fa and formatted. Um, so we even get feedback from the audience here on Rumble uh, at Rumble.com/slash/amradpod that you know, where's the V-necks, where's the <laughs> where's the where's the lady accessories. So um, you've definitely identified a a gap in the market, and uh, I would encourage everybody make sure you, you go shop at she's so right.co. Make sure you leave off the M. You don't want to uh, be sent. To I got a sue for the dot com. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, Last topic I want to do, do want to talk to you about because it was sort of uh, in the news a little bit yesterday. Uh, he was there was uh, was or was it yesterday or the day before Hunter Biden where he did his whole shenanigans at at the uh, congressional hearing. But uh, you were reporting recently on uh, on Burisma and the fact that there was a, a FARA uh, after the fact registration going on here. Um, I will pull up this. Uh, it was actually a tweet by you where you were reporting on it, and uh, and then kind of let you launch off here. And uh, it was uh, a criminal law firm representing Burisma, which was that Ukrainian gas giant paying Hunter Biden millions of dollars just registered as a foreign agent for its work in 2016. And it, this proves once and for all Hunter Biden violated FARA, which uh, prior to, I don't know, the Trump administration was never actually enforced. It was always just warranted a sternly worded letter from the U.S. Department of Justice. But uh, if we're going to go about going and prosecuting these cases, I, I would think that turnabout's fair play. It needs to be needs to be equal under the law. Uh, I'll let you uh, elaborate on that for the for the audience. 
Sure. Well, I think anyone who's turned on War Room, your show knows that Hunter violate, Hunter Biden violated Farah, uh, someone who broke a lot of stories from the Hunter Biden hard drive and has unfortunately had to look through all the pictures and see everything. Um, it's so clear. Um, you should really just pick your country, whether it was China, Ukraine, Russia, um, Iraq, you name it. Um, but what is so interesting about this case is that I think it's, uh, you know, case closed, final nail in the coffin. The, the final proof is there that he did because this white shoe law firm uh, registered retroactively eight years after they were working on behalf of Burisma, the Ukrainian oil and gas company, um, basically lobbying, getting meetings, helping with the legal representation to avoid an investigation from the then Obama administration into it for corruption. And that's the same exact thing that Hunter Biden was doing, right? Uh, no, there's no spin there. Um, so it sort of shows, I think, a, a couple of things. One, like I said, that Hunter Biden violated FARA, um, which again, not necessarily groundbreaking news, but two, I think for uh, Kravath to have registered eight years after doing all of this shows that they're actually scared um, of the looming impeachment inquiry. Um, which, believe me, I'm no person to have my pom-poms out to say anything that congressional Republicans are doing from the investigation and committee standpoint, as you are well aware, is substantive or means anything. But the fact that you have this law firm doing that, I think, is 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 signal, not noise, right? It's a very interesting tell, kind of a saying the quiet part out loud. Um, what's also really interesting about the filing is that it showed the people they were meeting with um, on behalf of Burisma, uh, of note, Marie Ivanovich, who was one of the key, if not the key, anti-Trump impeachment witnesses, um, but also two people who now have senior kind of energy-related roles within the current Biden regime. And I think that is where congressional Republicans have really missed the mark on the messaging with the Hunter Biden stuff, um, because it's not just that we're going after him because he's Joe Biden's son or, you know, he's having a hard time, like the mainstream media says, we're mocking him, he's addicted to drugs, he just needs, you know, rehab and help. It's not that. Um, the business deals that he conducted, that he pursued, the foreign, not just countries, but adversaries and enemies that he struck deals with, um, are having direct and lasting ramifications on United States policy abroad right now as we speak. Um, look no further than the Chinese spy balloon. Look no further than what's going on at the southern border, right? They're not going to bite the hand that feeds them. And even if they wanted to, I don't really think they could because Joe Biden and his family members are so beyond uh, in bed and in business with the, these entities. And I think to go kind of anecdotal, um, but, you know, evidence-based to prove it, you know, CEFC China Energy, which was when you hear, oh, the Biden family is making millions off of the Chinese Communist Party. That was the entity that was behind a lot of that. It was the same one that Hunter Biden bragged about being in business with, the effing spy chief of China, if anyone's heard that audio recording. It's a guy named Patrick Ho. Uh, but I had obtained deleted web pages from CEFC's website, sort of their like blog strategy part. And they admitted that their goal of their organization was to wage warfare against the United States and that they wanted China to replace the United States as the world's leading country. That's a direct quote, which goes back to what we were talking about earlier in this show. So it's not just that Hunter Biden, you know, was being a greedy capitalist and was just trying to have market access in China and helping some Chinese companies with marketing, right? No, they were aiding and abetting countries intent hellbent on the destruction of the United States. And there's a word for that, and it's called treason. And that is what they're they're guilty of. So I hope congressional Republicans get their act together on the impeachment front. Um, but this Burisma story, I think, is just, again, evidence, you know, example number 127,000, really, um, of Biden family corruption. But 
it's always great when you have it coming from Cravath or these more establishment type companies and entities, because even the mainstream press can't argue with that. And I mean, it's, it's one of these like low hanging fruit. It's news of the day type of things that are, people are talking about. Um, I'm interested in things that are generally larger and, and more 30,000 foot view of it. And I think that, uh, it's not even just the Biden family. Uh, and it's not even just Ukraine. Uh, you, you take what Peter Schweitzer reported on in Secret Empires, especially when it came to China. I mean, you got the Rosemont Seneca partnership that was going on there where these uh, captured intellectuals and these captured elite politicians are sending their children over as these princelings to go pick up bags of cash, especially from China. They have a lot of money over there, and that's the way they're able to infiltrate into our systems here. I know that's something that you know, you, you're you're big on, and I think that, that there, there's most to be learned about what's going on, not just from Ukraine. Ukraine's sort of this dark hole there. Where it seems to be a giant laundering operation. It's like a car wash for drug dealers. Uh, but I think that, that there's whatever we're able to uncover with Burisma and with Ukraine, you have to, by orders of magnitude, look at what's gone on with the Chinese Communist Party and how they've been able to do something similar here uh, to our to our rulers and our politicians, because uh, like you said, they're, they're not about invasion. They're about infiltration, which is always the long-term plan. And, uh, and I'm, I'm glad that at least somebody in the, the zip code of, of Washington DC is sort of focusing mm -hmm. in on that. Um, uh, but I wanted to uh, make sure that in the closing moments here that we, we remind people to go to she's so right.co um, and, and make sure you pick up your, uh, as long as you have, you know, she's going to have to do a reorder. There's no question about it. Uh, but yes. <laughs> while you're there, get your T-shirts and uh, and your hats and your totes. We are now in the post-Christmas uh, era here. So uh, people are, you said back, I know I know what you all did. You all returned everything that your parents got you because it didn't fit. Uh, <laughs> go ahead and and, and send and, and send mom or, or send your sister something that is a little bit more feminine. She's so right.co. Natalie, thank you so much for being here today. Thanks. We really uh, appreciate going deeper into to the issues. It's not just the, uh, did you see what Nancy Pelosi said yesterday type yes. of stuff? I know our audience really appreciates it. And and thank you for all that you're doing uh, to cover on these issues. Uh, and uh, and we appreciate your time today. Of course. Thank you so much for having me. Your show is is so wonderful. And I know you're saying you're not used to this. It's all new for you, but you, you are a wonderful host. So thank you so much for having me. All right. And thanks. And thank you everybody for joining us today on the American Radicals podcast. Uh, we stream a rumble every Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday at noontime, rumble.com slash amradpod. If you happen to be listening to the podcast, we stream there as well. iTunes, Podbean, iHeart, all of those. Uh, Wherever you are, make sure that you're giving us a follow. Make sure you're giving us a subscribe. Smash the like button uh, and uh, and help us to continue to grow. Uh, and we're, like I keep saying, guys, we're on an upward trajectory. I really appreciate us you making us part of your day. That's uh, That's been the most rewarding thing as I'm entering into, dipping a toe into the content creation side of things. So thank you all for your time today, and uh, we'll see you next time. listening to the voice of the suspendables on the american radicals podcast follow us on rumble.com slash am rad pod <laughs>